My name is Trey Herwick. I pastor a church over in St. Charles who is also greatly without power. Uh, so I told them we, we, our church uh, has power this morning, which I told them the church has power, both spiritually and electrically. Uh, so we're in good company. So I'm glad that you're here. Uh, again, I'm from over in St. Charles. The only reason that may matter to you is that Trailhead is actually the name of a fairly popular local watering hole uh, brew pub uh, over in St. Charles. And so when I told people I'm preaching at Trailhead, they were like, oh, and then slightly disappointed when they found out it was a church uh, over in Edwardsville. Uh, I've known Steve for, gosh, Lauren, 10 years, over 10 years. Um, we have known Steve and Lauren uh, over the last three years. Uh, I've gotten to know Steve on a much more uncomfortable level uh, for both of us. Uh, we are in a cohort together, so if he ever talks about this group of guys that he's in this cohort with that text like junior hires uh, every day, I am proudly a, a member of that cohort. Um, I love your pastor deeply, uh, deeply. Um, I consider it a great honor uh, to be called a friend of Steve Mizell. Uh, and it's, uh, it's also a great honor to be with you this morning and to be able to, uh, to fill in for him and give him some rest. Although I told our cohort as we were praying for each other this week on who's preaching, I said, I'm praying for Steve, so you may want to pray for him. I'm preaching for Steve, so you may want to pray for him. Uh, anyway. Um, my hope this morning is that anything that I say will in some, some way, somehow, uh, be, um, helpful to you as you explore Jesus, as you know Jesus, as you seek to grow, um, to trust him, uh, more. All of those realms and all of those areas, my hope and prayer as we go through this passage this morning is that, uh, any of these things would be helpful in encouraging you along the way. I'm going to be preaching from... Um, one of the most famous passages in Scripture, the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. It's, if you want to turn there, I think it's on page 809 in the Bibles that are under your chairs or your favorite device, uh, if you want to go there, um, just to let you know. And this is from the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and we'll get there in just a few minutes. Um, but this is a passage that, honestly, you could spend months on. You could do uh, months of, of really just kind of excavation of this passage, dissecting and cross-referencing and examining and pulling out and seeing what all is there. This is a very important um, uh, message in, uh, that Jesus really ushers in his kingdom with. Uh, and uh, you could take all of this time being comforted or being challenged by these words that Jesus shows us here uh, that I'm going to take about 30 to maybe 45 minutes uh, to uh, cover this morning, give a, uh, a, a broad overview. All right? Um, for some of you this morning, I may not be saying anything you don't know. You may hear this morning, you may hear this and go, yeah, I get that. Uh, and I'd encourage you not to tune out. Uh, some of you, just these words alone by Jesus and the, the encouragement or the redirection, the reexamination that he gives um, is going to be helpful. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict the comfortable and would comfort the convicted. This morning, as he reveals his words to us. And my goal is not to wow you with knowledge and insight, but rather to, for, to force all of us to really be confronted in uh, examining our motives, our, our, our trajectories, where we're going, what we believe the Christian life to be about, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, uh, that we would examine those things as they intersect with what Jesus introduces as the very foundation 
of what it is to be a follower of, of Christ. Um, and so with that, I'll, I'll start off with some questions just to kind of uh, provoke our thinking a little bit. Um, these are questions that we ask often when we come to this passage. A lot of pastors will ab- approach this passage with this. And, that, and that's this. Who do we esteem in our culture? Who do we value? What are the characteristics that we hold high? In our worldview, in our economy, who sits at the top? Who do we want in charge of things? Who would you trust with your investments, with your retirement? Who would you trust with your education? Who is your, paying your retirement to pre actually saving for retirement? Who do you trust with your kids to teach them? Who do you trust with your employment? Who do you trust with your spiritual guidance? What kind of characteristics, what kind of attributes do you look for in somebody that's giving you spiritual guidance? Here's a hard one. If you really take time and really think about it, this is where the question comes in. What do you value more? And I'm not going to have you raise hands, uh, but just to really think about this. What do you value more? Character or competency? What's more important? Um, I'll just shoot straight with you. As pastors, and I think your pastor would agree with this, uh, we have lots of conferences. Good grief, we have more conferences than churches, I feel like. Um, And, and, uh, man, maybe 95% of these conferences are, are focused on, if not more, are focused on competency. Doing church doing it well? How do you lead? How do you develop programs? How do you grow the church? How do you do marketing and branding? And how do you do all of those things? And some of those things are important. Some of them are important. Some of them, that's a tangent. I won't get off on. Um, But there's really not a whole lot for pastors on character. Developing character. Steve and I knew each other pretty well for a long time, but these last three years, man, we've been up in each other's crawl for, like, we've gotten to know each other at uncomfortable levels. Three years of being together where the primary focus is us spewing out our junk, kind of standing in front of five other pastors and doing this, figuratively, not literally, right? Revealing our stuff. And it's challenging, and I don't always like it, and it's painful, and and it's been life-giving and and probably life-saving to do that. So when we open up this passage, look at Matthew 5, 1 through 12, the Beatitudes. Um, This is Jesus' first sermon. It's his longest and most extensive teaching. It goes all the way chapter 5 through chapter 7. Um, And uh, and here's here's what he does. In chapter 4, he has just announced... I declare, at the end of chapter 4, Jesus announces, I declare that the kingdom of God is here. Jesus is ushering in this new kingdom that will one day, that, that is now and one day will be completely and fully reigning. It's this new economy, a new value system. And right off the bat, he's going to give us a look at what citizens of this new kingdom look like. So if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 12, I'll read it for you, and then we're just going to take it slow going as we go through it. 
Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And I love this part, almost extra details. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. So who's valuable in this economy? Who's valuable in this kingdom? Who rises to the top? What should we strive for? Who should we want to be? Who should we emulate? Who are the major players? Who are the heroes? Who's blessed Hashtag. (laughs) I know I did that backwards. That was an afterthought. All right. Everybody ready? Everybody ready? Here's who Jesus does. He intros this kingdom, and here's who's blessed. Blessed are the doctrinites. No. Wait a minute. Blessed are the religious elites. Blessed are the political leaders. No, this is what Jesus intros with. Imagine all these beggars, all these outsiders, and all these religious elites gathered around him. And this is Jesus' first sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is this kingdom. Jesus puts on display for us who carries the weight in this new kingdom. And it turns every earthly economy on its head, totally upside down. And not only is this list of attributes of what a kingdom person is, not only is what we normally would expect for any other kingdom of who would be valuable, who would be the major players, who we would follow, but if we're honest, it's also foreign to what we really often ascribe to be in in the Christian life today. Most of us don't disciple toward poverty of spirit. My fear, when we talk about the Christian life, we talk about growing in the Christian life, what does it mean to mature, what does it mean to be a mature mature follower of Jesus? Here's my fear. My fear is what we often think of. We don't say it, but I think we often think of what does it mean to be a a mature follower of Jesus? It means this. You get your sin stuff in order. You learn the proper doctrines, the proper responses, the proper lingo to present yourself in a certain way, get the spiritual disciplines in place that you practice often, so that... You don't need Jesus as much. He has time to go worry about those other sinners. Maybe. I mean, we would never say that, right? Let me let you in on a little secret, okay? This seems very obvious. seems very obvious, but often in practice it's not. Okay, here it is. The goal of the Christian life is never ever 
to need Jesus less. The goal of the Christian life is never to need Jesus less. It's never to say, thanks, thanks for the head start, I'm good now. And we'll see that as we dig through each of these attributes of what it looks like to be a kingdom person. Now, this is not just a random set of virtues that Jesus gives, and he says, you know, some of you are going to be meek, and that's great. Some of you are going to be poor in spirit, that's great. These are not these are not attributes that we have naturally. These are things that develop and grow in us as the gospel of grace works in our hearts. Um, and in fact, some, some scholars would say that there's actually an order to this, especially in the book of Matthew. There's a progress as this happens, and I, I, I like the way that flows. And so we'll look at it as, as a, uh, a, a progressive of how the gospel works in us, um, how it begins to form us, and then what it produces in us in the last half, the last four So here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to listen as we walk through this. Some of you may be sitting in here this morning fairly confident in your spirituality. Some of you may be sitting in here um, and you may think, of course I'm a Christian. Of course I am. I live in southern Illinois. We're we're of a, a good moral upbringing. I don't do those things. I do the right things. I have good knowledge of Scripture. Of course I'm a Christian. You may be listening with critical ears. You may be listening, all right, I'm, I'm going to report back to Steve if, if this guy commits any major heresies. And uh, listen, some of that's okay, all right? Steve needs guys like that um, to talk to him, not to me. I don't care. Um, uh, and that's okay, but here's what I want you to ask. Do you see the traits that are at work in you Um, do they match the measurements for spiritual maturity that Jesus gives in the Beatitudes? Does your line of scrutiny match Jesus' line of scrutiny? Some of you may be sitting here, regardless of how you look externally, you may be sitting here confidently externally, but internally you're a mess. And just confession's good for the soul. That's me um, this morning. Um, And you think, could God really even love me? Would God even waste his time on somebody like me? I'm a mess. There's no way I could be a Christian. And let me tell you, my hope for you is that these passages would bring hope, light to the eyes, life to the soul. Listen, you're right. There is no way that you or I could or should be Christians, citizens of this kingdom. Um, And yet, there's hope in these words as we see them progress. There's hope here, and I pray that you'd be nourished in that this morning. So we're going to go through these quickly. You're like, oh my gosh, he hasn't even gotten to them yet. Um, We're going to go through them fairly quickly. We start with this. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is not talking about materially poor here. That is not what he is referring to. In Luke, it says that blessed are the poor. He's not talking materially poor. This is spiritually speaking. However, however, we would be remiss not to address the fact that oftentimes we build up some spiritual security through material things. Amen? Yeah, that's a temptation, right? Either the presence of or the desire for. Proverbs says there's a righteous rich and a righteous poor. And there's an unrighteous rich and an unrighteous poor. 
Sometimes we have this temptation to look at material possessions as our security. If I have enough in the bank account, if I have enough in retirement, if I have this job, the measure of things, I've got my car is working great, and, you know, all this kind of stuff, uh, we can look at those things as our, as our hope or the presence uh, or the desire for. Maybe we don't have these things, but we think if I just had blank, then I would be happy. Then I would be fulfilled. Once the new iPhone comes out, then I will have everything I didn't have before. Right? Um, materialism plays a role in this, but this is referring to a spiritual sense. Let me see if this makes more sense. Blessed are those who know that they are spiritually bankrupt. Who know that because of their sin, they bring nothing to the table. When I was younger, I was a youth minister. And I knew I needed Jesus. I was raised in the church, so I knew that. I knew the proper steps to take. And I was 9 or 10, and I think God was at, certainly at work on my heart. Um, and, uh, and, and I knew I needed Jesus, but, but I, I had some giftings, right? I mean, of course Jesus would want me to serve him, right? I, I could play guitar. I could sing a little bit. I had a sense of humor. I had a goatee, right? Goatee used to be the prerequisite for ministry, uh, and then it went to the soul patch, and now it's like the four-foot beard, right? So that's the legalistic progression of facial hair, and as we see in, for ministry. Um, of course God can use me, and dare I say God needs me. Ugh. Listen, this is not a kingdom where God needs your input. <laughs> this is not a kingdom that you can buy your way in. This is not a talent agency where Jesus is looking for the best and brightest. We do not serve as chief advisors to the king, telling God how he can do things a little bit better. Blessed are those who know that their sin makes them spiritually bankrupt, that we don't offer God a thing, we can't buy our way in. And listen, isn't that great news? I mean, unless we're tempted to think of ourselves a little bit highly, more highly than we ought, that's great news. As Tim Keller says, all you need is need. Step one of what it looks like to be a citizen, blessed are those who bring nothing to the table, who see their sin and know that they're spiritually bankrupt. And what that leads us to is a mourning, M-O-U-R-N, mourning, a grieving it's not enough just to acknowledge our sin, but does that bring grief and mourning in us? There's a lot of ways that we can respond to sin that are not grieving and mourning, right? There's comparisons. Well, at least I'm not as bad as fill in the blank, Cubs fan, right? I mean, we can all say that. That's right. I'm from the other side of the river and not very proud of it this year. Um, there's a lot. We can, we can compare. At least I'm not as bad as those people. Right? Here's where it gets more tricky. Ugh, we got two teenagers, and there's a subversive way that we teach teenagers how to judge. Right? I don't want you hanging around with those sinners. Oh. And I don't, but like, mmm. That's a struggle. 
That's one way we can deal with our sin. We can compare. We can ignore. We can ignore our own sin. We can talk about the sins of others. And let's face it, we're ninjas at that. Right? I mean, social media is our market for that. That's why it was created for us to judge other people and post articles about their problems. How many books, how many churches, how many all these things have the title, uh, have things in their title of to change the world? Right? We are out to change the world. You know why? Because it's, it's what's wrong with all of them. That's a great way to avoid what's wrong with us. Andy Crouch once said, sometimes when we talk about changing the world, more often than not, we're talking about changing the subject. Here's another way. We can try to repay God. That's what my son does all the time. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Sorry. God, give me a chance. I'll, I'll let me, I, I, I can make it up to you. Give me a chance, and I'll do this. I'll never do that again. And then I'll do this, and I'll work my way back, and I'll add some more currency so I won't be as spiritually poor. Or we can mourn. We can grieve. We can see our sin and the brokenness it causes in our relationship with God, in our relationship with others. Not a guilt trip, but a, a mourning and a grieving. God, this is not the way that you designed me to be. It's not the way you designed me to live. I'm using people. I'm, I'm, I'm treating others. I'm trying to elevate myself. I'm ignoring you. And when I consider your love for me, it is overwhelming. And it breaks me that either intentionally or out of ignorance that I, that I walk away from you. It breaks me. And it's not only mourning for our own sin, it's also mourning for the sins of others as opposed to gloating. Ooh, this is when that comparison thing comes in, and it gets me. How many times do you see a pastor fall, a theologian, you know, change views, uh, or, or a, a Christian leader, you know, just kind of brought under, uh, just, you know, publicly sin? Uh, and, and our response internally is, ha, I knew it. I knew it, right? Praise God we have Christian bloggers that can say that for us. That didn't surprise me. And there's this kind of smug, glib-like self-righteousness. And man, I'm guilty when they're not on my side. Paul was confronted with that. Paul had several friends that left the faith. And you know what he did? He grieved He wept. He didn't gloat. God says that this mourning over our sin, this grieving over our sin and the brokenness of the world, the promise that we have there, it will be comforted. We'll be comforted. God is close to the brokenhearted. When we grieve, when we gloat, there's your reward. God is close to those who mourn. Finally, we see that we uh, are, next we see that we're spiritually bankrupt, and that leads us to a mourning, uh, which leads us to see our position, which is meekness. Meekness is simply an awareness of our spiritual position. We are not God, but we are image bearers. Meekness prohibits us from thinking more highly or more lowly of ourselves than we ought. Meekness is a position that says, I got nothing. I can't, I can't make my own way out, and I'm not big enough to screw things up. I, I'm, I'm, I'm in surrender. Meekness does not just mean shy. Meekness means I, I, I have a lot of options. Here I am. 
I am completely and totally at the mercy of another. And here's good news for those in Christ that the other has an inheritance for the meek that is imperishable and undefiled. Finally, this trajectory leads us to a position of desperation, hunger and thirst. This is, either, this is the apex of where this is leading or, or the valley, the lowest of the valley of where these, this trajectory goes. Uh, and, it, and it's, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, he doesn't say blessed are those who hunger and thirst uh, for satisfaction, for they will be satisfied. And he doesn't say blessed are those uh, who hunger and thirst for blessedness, for they will be satisfied. We still have this option of a way out. God, I'm hungry. Fill me. But he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what does that mean? There's a few different ways to see the word righteousness uh, in Scripture. And I think Paul uses it differently. But I love, uh, if you, if you substitute, righteous is not a popular word in our culture. Most of the time we think of it as self-righteous, right? That's where we see it most, used most often. If you can think of the word righteous as acceptable, What makes you acceptable? God's deeds are righteous because they are acceptable deeds because God declares them and deems them acceptable. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be accepted, to be made acceptable before God. God, here I am. I have nothing to bring. I grieve my rebellion against you. I am made by you, but have sinned against you. I'm desperate. I am at your mercy. Is there any way to be made right? Is there any way to be made whole? Is there any way that I could still be accepted by you? We have a glorious answer. Yes. Your desperation has brought you to the right place. You will be satisfied. In Christ, your hunger will be fed and and you will thirst no more. One of my favorite uh, authors and is a sociologist named Brene Brown. Uh, and in her first TED Talk on vulnerability, she lays out these steps beautifully. Um, she says, based on research, so this is not a religious term, this is not, uh, she's a sociologist, so she's science that actually take into account that humans exist, right? Which is why I love sociology and science. I'm kind of like, blah, personal thing, just whatever. Um, But based on research, she says the deepest human need is connection. The deepest need of every human is to feel connected, to be accepted. So if the deepest need of every human is to be accepted, what's the deepest fear of every human? To be rejected. Here's what the Beatitudes do. Here's what these first four Beatitudes do. They strip us down completely naked to a completely vulnerable position where we have to kind of stand there like this. Our sinful and fallen fig leaves have fallen to the side, even though our mind keeps telling us, cover up, man. This is a trap. He's going to make fun of you. He's going to leave you. What if other people find out? You better cover back up and run. You better make excuses. You better compare yourself to that guy or God is going to leave you. It's too much. And here in our complete nakedness and desperation, hungry and thirsty, God meets us with satisfaction. You will be satisfied. You are fully known and here fully loved. 
This is not four steps to building your resume. It's more like four steps to rip up your resume and leave you completely exposed before God. And there, in Christ, be loved. This is the gospel. That's the fullness of it right there. You don't graduate from this. You don't move on to bigger and better things. You don't get past this. You don't go, yeah, 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 got that. Now let's talk about this stuff over here. This is it, man. This is it. And the next four Beatitudes flow out of this, and I promise we'll go quickly. What does a person look like? What does a person do who has been deeply satisfied? What does that then produce in us? How do we interact? How do we behave? What does it look like to be a person deeply satisfied? If you ever want to know, a lot of times we talk about this, well, what should Christians look like? What should, how should we be a Christian example in our day? Here's the thing. Before you go morality and what rules we should and shouldn't follow, a Christian should look like a person who has experienced radical forgiveness. And what does that produce in us? Here's what Jesus says. They show mercy. They don't show mercy as a power play. We're culturally, we're in the first generation, I think maybe in the history of time, where it's popular to be merciful. That's not, but it's still, it's still mercy as a power play. That's my cynical side that I'm pretty, pretty confident in, in this one. It's redemptive cynicism. We'll talk about that later. All right? Um, but they, they show mercy because they've received mercy and will continue to receive mercy. It's not, in, it's not indifference, it's not insecurity, but they act with great mercy. Here's what a merciful person does. A merciful person sees a story in other people, not just a snapshot. All right? A snapshot is when we have a certain amount of details about a person and we judge them up, down, left, right based on that. A picture, a quick picture. We stereotype, oh, they're just like this. Oh, that's part of the agenda of the left or the right. Oh, this is what they're trying to do. And our ways of solving those are usually met with the phrase, they just need to, dot, dot, dot. Mercy doesn't do that. Mercy avoids massive stereotypes with everything you have because there's a story behind every human, including you. We want the story, right? We want people to understand when we mess up, when we blow it, when we do it, but we kind of want to give the snapshot to everybody else. Mercy sees that God saw our story and loved us even there. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not accountable for our mistakes, we're not accountable for our sin and our rebellion or anything like that, but we make people more human. And so we look to see a story, not just a snapshot. A satisfied person is pure in heart. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that they're absolutely innocent. It means that there is a chief desire, a chief motive, that they've tasted what's good and they will not settle for substitutes, cheap imitations. They fight with vigor, attempts to pose and posture to make themselves appear better than they actually are. They're becoming truly authentic, genuinely authentic. A pure pursuit is able to recognize false advertising. It means our hearts become quicker to repent, quicker to see pride, quicker to see arrogance, that we become open to rebuke, we become open to correction, to learning, to growing. And the promise here is that, these, that, that pure in heart will actually see God, that they will hear the well done of their heavenly Father and not, to, not have to pine for it from others, but they will also hear in the encouragement of others. 
the well done of their heavenly father. Finally, satisfied person is a peacemaker. What does that mean? That's actually kind of hard. This is not just, it's not just passive, uh, nor is it a crap starter. I can say crap, right, Lauren? Surely Steve says crap. Sorry. I mean, it just got us both in trouble. Uh, stirring, can, does, does a peacemaker stir things up and bring uh, uncomfortable conversations? Sure. Yes. And this is a hard thing to walk. It's not just talking about a passive person who won't say anything controversial. But it's someone whose motive is peace. Seeing people grow in the way we were designed. Seeing fighting for human flourishing. Wanting for reconciliation. Wanting the best for others. Not self-validation. Not mic drops to, to rally the troops on our side. Not mocking other people for the gathered, you know, online audiences that give us the thumbs up. And that's, man, massive confession there. But a pursuer of peace. Sometimes, as Christians, we're scared to say anything, right? We're scared to say anything that might be deemed offensive. And that list continues to grow of what's offensive. And we're scared to, we're scared to say anything. We're scared to do anything. Um, and, and because we don't want to step on toes. And sometimes, guys, sometimes, honestly, we need to graciously be faithful wounders to say hard things to ourselves and to other people. But do it in grace, as, as we would want it said to us. But if we don't say anything, that's saying peace, peace when there's no peace. That's accommodation. But on the flip side, we also are kind of a, a culture filled with activists. Right? Name And, and pick your side on that. Um, some activists are actually peacemakers, laboring for shalom and for human flourishing. Some are actually just angry and bitter. And this is a way to carry it out. Most, most of us are probably both. Um, there's a lady I started following on Twitter who describes herself not as an activist, although she does a lot of things that, are, that are, would be activist, uh, but she describes herself as a, as a bridge builder. And I actually really like that. The danger of activism is it can lead and move only toward more bitterness. Activists are rarely satisfied. They're rarely, uh, there's a tendency, if you don't fully agree with me, then we have nothing to say. Can be. It can also be a self-justified way of being angry at, at everyone else. Not righteous anger, but unrighteous anger. A bridge builder can do activism, but tends to celebrate any advance, any progress, any movement from one side or the other. A bridge builder could see their own needs, their own sin as part of the issue, and also their own healing as part of the issue. I think that's the posture behind what it means to be a peacemaker. And finally, when and if you are persecuted. If you are persecuted, you're in good company. Your identity is not shaken. That doesn't mean you go looking for persecution. It certainly doesn't mean you have to manufacture persecution. I mean, Paul says, when at all possible, live at peace with everyone. Right? And sometimes I think it's a lot more possible than we make it. Um, so it's important to know that the validation of your faith is not how much you're persecuted. Right? I don't know if you've ever seen the dares and the challenges. If you really love Jesus, people are going to persecute you. Okay, may, maybe. 
but not necessarily. If you are persecuted, most of the persecution facing the early church, it's probably important for us to know that most of the persecution facing the early church didn't come from atheists and Muslims and Democrats. It came from the church. It came from the religious. It came from the people who were being bold about not being persecuted or being persecuted. It came from their own. If it happens, we are able to rejoice in Christ's presence. Jesus was speaking this to early Jews who were facing persecution from their own people. Who were reading this account from Matthew with new eyes. Keep in mind, there's two things here. Jesus is speaking this to a crowd, but early readers were Jewish converts following the way, following Jesus. And the first readers were reading this and they had already seen what Christ had done. They already knew the fullness of this story. They already knew that the very guy that said this would be the path, would be the one who would face ultimate persecution from the religious elite. And we put, would be uh, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. But who would be raised, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that this man, Jesus, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we can face persecution as our Savior faced persecution. We don't have to take vengeance into our own hands. We can allow, uh, we can allow him to work. So what do we take from this? Walking through these, this, this very entrance into this kingdom, the Beatitudes of what it looks like to be a kingdom person. Let's circle back to the very beginning. What attributes do you see as valuable? What do you esteem in your personal accountability and your personal value and worth? What are you striving for? Are you striving for brokenness of spirit? Or are you trying to be something? Are you striving for vulnerability to be naked before God and, and re- actually receive his forgiveness? Or are we striving to cover up with certain knowledges and certain behaviors and certain presentations? Are these attributes growing in you? Are they being fed? Are they being nourished? Are they being challenged? Are they, uh, or are they being covered up? If you stand before God, do you have the courage? Do we have the courage to stand before God in complete desperation and, and actually trust his promise? Come to me hungry and thirsty. Instead of saying, God, Here I am, and I've got some sins, but check out what I've done. For those who are uh, convicted, and and, and this is me, um, if if I'm honest with you, I don't have the right to be up here and preach this this week. Um, This is a hard one this week, just dealing with a whole lot of crap and wanting to go numb. Can we hear, even hear, God's grace and forgiveness? Can we mourn our sin and not try to deny it, not try to cover it up, not try to go other ways with it? Do we really believe that here in our desperation we could actually be satisfied? goes against every value we know, every human economy, every resume that we've put together. God's like, come back when you're bankrupt. 
My hope and prayer is that the Holy Spirit would fight through our stubbornness, our insecurity, our denial, our presentation, our posing and posturing, and that he would bring us to a place where we can say, God, I desperately need you. Is there any way that I could be accepted? And to hear over and over again, yes. In Christ, you have been made acceptable. Nothing else. In Christ alone, you have been made acceptable. And my prayer is that we as the church would really begin to look like a satisfied people, not a complacent people, a people who have been deeply loved and forgiven. May we be a people marked with a deep identity rooted in Christ's work alone and not our self-advancement and not our pride of how good we have it together and how much better we are than those people and not our insecurity. May, May we be merciful, may we be pure, and may we be peacemakers. Uh, In just a moment, I'm going to pray, but in just a moment, we're going to share a meal uh, together called communion. And I think this meal is a perfect picture. Uh, It's a meal where the the tab has already been picked up. You can't pay for this meal. And you can't pull up a comfortable chair to this table apart from the work of Christ. So the invitation to take this meal is, is to shed off any presumption that you think somehow you've earned it. I mean, I just pick up the tip. No. It's covered. All you need is need. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, mercy and grace. And I, I say that, man, it sounds so trite. It sounds like religious jargon. Uh, may it not be. May it not be. May we not skip past. We may know all this stuff, but, it, but may it penetrate our heart and our minds and our souls. May we see the desperation of our need. May we be, especially as we come to communion, may we be hungry and thirsty and know that the only thing we have to nourish our faith is your body broken for us and your blood poured out for us. And in that, may we be satisfied. Fill our hearts with awe and wonder that could it possibly be that you could love your people this much? Do more than we could ask or fathom for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.